welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. My name is Amber Kluwer, and I've lived with type 1 diabetes for decades and enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living with this disease. Before we dive into this episode, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit, charitable organization. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. It's easy. Just purchase a copy of Doing Diabetes Differently or click the donate link on my website. Number two, stay engaged on all things social media, sign up for the e-newsletter, and subscribe to my newly updated YouTube channel where this episode will soon be live. Enough rambling. Let's get started. Today's guest, Sarah Spencer Canotti, is a registered nurse and certified diabetes care and education specialist with over 17 years of healthcare experience. She currently serves as the program quality coordinator and co-creator of the Diabetes Education Center at Austin Regional Clinic in Austin, Texas, where she facilitates comprehensive diabetes self-management education in the ambulatory care setting. Lots of words. But her LinkedIn profile description is why I asked her to be my guest today. It states she's unapologetic, a ridiculously excited diabetes advocate, ally, and part-time pancreas. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Amber. Great to be here. Well, and I'm so excited in reading more about you. So you're an Oklahoman. I am. I was born in Chickasha. <laughs> oh, the Shay. I know the Shay. <laughs> yes. Good people come from there. And where are you calling in from today? I'm in Cedar Park, Texas. Oh, that's such a good area, too. I love, love that part. Well, we're just going to dive into things. So I want to start by the word part-time pancreas. And it's rare that I interview a parent of someone living with diabetes. But in your bio, you talked about the fact that diabetes was a common word growing up because you have a family history of type 2 diabetes, correct? Yes. Yes. Strong family history. <laughs> As Oklahomans, that's a uh, Pretty common. I hate to say that, but it's the truth. Okay, so no, nobody in your family had type 1. No type 1, no autoimmune diseases whatsoever that I'm aware of to this day okay. on either side. Well, let's dive into, let's talk about the diagnosis day. What led up to it as well? Like, Well, my husband and I both are healthcare professionals, so some a little bit stinging and haunts me a little bit. But I remember on Halloween 2013, my three-year-old at the time, I had a one-month-old then, going to the refrigerator and getting water. And I, even though I'm a nurse and I know people with diabetes, I said out loud, do you have diabetes? And I was, it just seems so far, you know, from yeah. possibility. But she was drinking a lot. She was getting up during the night. So fast forward to December 4th, we had gone home for Thanksgiving prior to that and to Midland, Texas. And I, I was concerned, you know, oh, she looks like she's losing weight. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, she's taking after Dennis's side of the family, my husband. That's what, you know, that's what my family members said. Anyhow, when I, when we got back into town on December 4th, I scheduled her an appointment with her, her pediatrician. And I just remember being in the bathroom floor that morning, just pleading with God that something else was going on. Right. And we went and everything, he, she looked great, you know, but we have a wonderful pediatrician. He, he went ahead and did a urine and, you know, her, her urine stick lit up and yeah. her finger stick was 585. And that was it. And that day forward, my life changed. <laughs> well, for sure. Did you guys have to go immediately to Children's Hospital from there? We did. We went down to Dell Children's here in Austin and checked in and 
just a whirlwind five day pediatric ICU stay. Yeah. And learned how our new life would be. And this was in 2013, correct? 2013, yes. And, and the only re- well, and the only reason I bring that up too is because I have interviewed so many people that have been diagnosed in the past, I'd say 15, 20 years. You're in and out of the hospital in a day. So and I was there for two weeks. So you're you getting five days. And I'm sure your daughter needed the all the IVs and everything to get to, yeah. the, to, to be better. But that's, I'm going to say you're l- lucky that you got that long of care. Yeah, she, she's been three days in the PICU. The other two were on the floor. And uh, yes, most definitely, especially now on the flip side of things, I often feel that people are somewhat blessed when they're diagnosed younger because they do get the added support that adults don't necessarily get. Oh, that's a fact. And we're going to get into all that here in just a second and a lot about your advocacy with that. So one of the things, and okay, so you, you recognize the symptoms a little bit. She gets five days in the hospital. Do you feel like in that hospital stay, as a healthcare provider, did you receive proper education and information about type 1 diabetes? Most definitely I did, which I know I'm also very fortunate, but I yeah. have reflect back on that experience a lot. And I remember them telling us there that they don't allow patients to leave until they're confident that the parent can care for them safely. We did get our carb counting diabetes education. It was a a crash course on the last day that we were there. But yeah, we did. I and and the physician, I wish I could remember his name. I remember the diabetes educator's name, Shelly. But if I could remember the physician's name, I remember him coming into the ER room and just saying, you know, this is what it is, but it's okay. She's going to be okay. She's going to have children. She's going to live a long life. So he put a lot of those fears that might have jumped into my head to sleep before they even, you know, started. Okay. So when you left the hospital, what regimen did they put your daughter on from the beginning? She was on basal bolus. It was just, yeah, Lantus once at night and then Mm -hmm. TID. And then we were checking her blood sugar every two hours. Right. For the first few weeks, I know. And I was on maternity leave with my newborn. And so my maternity leave was up. And so she had to go back to daycare shortly after. So that was one of the more challenging things is teaching her daycare about something I was just learning about how to manage. Wow, that's a crash course for real. Yes. (laughs) And with the testing her blood sugar every two hours, did she ever get angry or was she, did she? Oh, yes. She, she's a rock star, of course, um, all yeah. people living with type one are, but in the beginning it, it was rough. We would, we would have to hold her down yeah. and take two of us and especially with the injections. But I mean, she, she now, stick, you know, well, even, even years now she handles it all on her own pretty much, but yeah. she would stick her toe out. You know, she got, by the time she was four, she was sticking her toe out of her covers in the middle of the night so we could get her <laughs> toe or <laughs> whatever, whatever we needed to do. No, that's some crazy stuff. I've said on many occasions, parents of a person, a small child with type 1 diabetes, you would deserve a number of awards and all things, but you have a much harder job than someone living with a disease at times, especially as we get older, because you can't determine without the finger prick or the other things. And as a young person, she could she articulate, my blood sugar is going lower. Yeah. No, none of that. I mean, it came quickly. I mean, she, you know, I feel like you mature faster than you might usually. 
when you have a chronic condition. So it it came quickly. She was able to, but no, she didn't know. And we didn't have a CGM in the, in the beginning. And mm-hmm. it was just a whole new world. And, yeah. and then a, put a newborn on top of it. It was, it was fun times. <laughs> and you survived. You made it. Oh and we God. survived. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So well, how long after her diagnosis did she... Did you guys get a CGM? Because technology at that point was really just starting to come out. Right. Yeah. Talk. Let's talk about CGMs. She got it, her CGM. I think it was the Dexcom G4, I want to say, in 2014. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty re- relatively yeah. quickly after she was diagnosed. It might have even been a little bit sooner than that. Because I remember the We Are Not Waiting movement, the yeah. grassroots stuff was really just getting kicked up on CGM in the cloud. And so mm-hmm. we had the pebble and the whole device that you wired <laughs> together. And and it was a really cool thing. I remember going uh, at work and showing people my watch, like, this is my daughter's blood sugar. This is my sanity. This is the only reason yeah. I can work. And people were just amazed. And then, so I just think it's such a beautiful thing. Now, fast forward to 2013, and that is, you know, standard. Yeah. So yeah. we just need more, more access there. But, but yeah, CGM changed our our life and that was it was not immediate but it was soon thereafter and then the pump followed which pump did she is she currently using she's using the omnipod and she's all that's all she's ever used she likes the to be not tethered oh yeah yeah and we do it we do the do it yourself loop so okay and that's great i love that you guys have taken the bull by the horns and you figure out what's best for her and it's some crazy stuff. I want to say also from your profile, and I love this. So you went to the to Oklahoma State University. I went to OU. I mean, yes, not rivals. I, I saw that. I considered that when I was a, <laughs> a green, but yeah, go poke. <laughs> well, and I love Oklahoma, anything sports. I mean, as long as we're not going against each other, I'm in full sport. That's too much information. But That's what nice. I love, because I've always had a side hustle. And you're talking about finding ways to make extra money and you're giving injections on cats. Yeah. When people were out of town. Yeah. How and pricking they... their ears. How, <laughs> the did you, how did you find the market there? Because I'm sure there's plenty of them, but A, how did yeah. you find the market? B, how much did you get paid? <laughs> well, it was $15 a day okay. uh, and it included two trips. And occasionally I would stay over in pet, yeah. know, pet sit house, set, but, um, I had an amazing mentor back then, Dr. Annette Kalsch. She mm-hmm. is a veter- veterinarian, retired now, but in Stillwater. And so I worked with her at the cat clinic. That's how I uh, yeah. made money during school. And so through that, we met, I met patients, kitties that needed extra, extra care. So that's how that came about. And so I, you know, I had about five or six. I still remember quite a few of their names that I would... I would see and, um, you know, prick their ears or the pads of their, their feet, whichever I could manage to get to and give them their insulin injections while their parents were on vacation. That's so funny. <laughs> well, and let me say that one of my favorite shows right now, which is I'm embarrassed to admit, is the incredible Dr. Pole. And uh-huh. I watch them give injections all the time on that show. So when you give a cat an injection, do you give it in the back of their neck or do you give it in their hips? Where do you give it? Well, some of the, some of the, kitties I was tasked with caring for had bold personalities. So pretty much wherever I could get it in. By the time I had pricked their blood sugar, you know, checked, checked it. And so, but anywhere under their skin, anywhere subcutaneously was suitable. 
Well, and with a cat, what do you, when you test their blood sugar, what's a normal blood sugar for a cat? You know, that is a very good question. I want to say that it was just the regular scale that we, we follow yeah. as humans, but it's, it's been a long time. So I could be wrong yeah. about that. Well, and I'm about to start a new podcast series where we're going to address certain things. And diabetes in animals is fascinating to me. And yes. how many animals in the variety, like koala bears. And I mean, it's just, it's insane. That's a totally different podcast. But <laughs> one of the things I really liked about your advocacy efforts is that language and healthcare. So yes. I'm going to read something from what you had sent me in. And her diagnosis ignited my passion to create a better world for those living with diabetes. It awakened me to the myths stigma, misnomers, ignorance, and bias that exists for those living with this disease that complacently permeate society, including healthcare. A lot of words there, but let's yeah. talk about as a healthcare provider. And okay, so let's just talk about what, what does that mean to you, that, the language in healthcare? Oh, it's very dated. Are they still using the word diabetic? Diabetic, yes. Diabetic, non-compliant, oh. uncontrolled. Yeah. All the things. Yes. And as soon as I stepped into that world, even though, you know, I, I lived amongst people who I love dearly living with diabetes, but when I became as a parent, you, you're kind of the target of the stigma and the words and the oh, things yeah. um, when you have a small child anyway. I quickly realized how how much misinformation was out there about diabetes and then and I would carry that with me at work I, and I, it, would, it would change the way I would speak with the people that I was working with that were living with diabetes to the point now that I even, you know, I, I really try to, the, with the clinicians that I work with, you know, to, to subtly correct, you know, correct yeah. the language, or at least, you know, be the change. I, yeah. I change the way I, I speak and the way I type my notes. Um, yeah. Just very, very important. And to change it from a shame blame game to more of an empowerment managing unmanaged managed those kind of things instead of those words Negative. that have a lot of weight oh yeah oh yeah and with that and especially with working with your peers and maybe people that you're i'm going to say under i don't know how that it works like if you're working with a physician and you're whatever any pushback or any slap on the hands like what are you doing here or well received I feel like it's really well received. I have a I have a great rapport with most of the the people that I work with, and especially mm -hmm. I I feel like I have I know because of of my advocacy that other nurses and and clinicians have have changed the way that they see and speak about diabetes. So I feel like that's a win. But so I I feel like it's very well received, and sometimes you don't have to do it kind of kind of jokingly, but it gets the point across. And, I, you know, if you, if you read something, it, so when I'm sending my, my notes to the physicians about whatever, if, if I word it differently than, you know, and yeah, I, I just feel like it's received differently and that makes an impact whether we see it immediately or not. Yeah. You know, and have you thought about, is I, we make jokes often about, especially people when they're diagnosed with type two diabetes, is they're given a pamphlet. And it's like, okay, here you go. Eat healthy. What do you know? Well, what does yeah. healthy mean to you? So canned green beans, is that healthy? Right. I mean, things like that. So do you feel like there's proper literature out there right now when somebody's diagnosed? I think that everything is dated. How do you continue to keep it updated? You know? So yeah. Do you feel like the information that you guys are presenting is up to date? 
Well, that's the great thing about being able to be on the forefront of, of creating a program uh, yeah. within my organization, along with my, my manager, is that we are aware of this language movement and mm. we are current with the, the, the 23 standards of care. So we are able, you know, we have, we have to, to have certain curriculum to have yeah. accreditation, but we're able to incorporate those terms and it gives me no greater pleasure than when I, when I'm speaking with someone living with diabetes and they, they just feel that I can see it where, mm-hmm. where it leads them. I, I always start my first class with unpacking. We're unpacking and we unpack regret. We unpack shame. We unpack guilt. We unpack any unnecessary baggage that people are carrying around. And, and one of the first things we get into is this is not, you know, diabetes has been around. It was named way back in 250 BC. So way before Jesus, <laughs> um, way before McDonald's, right. you know, way before Netflix, diabetes was there. So yes, you know, with type 2 diabetes, weight and activity, yes, they definitely impact and they factor in, they yeah. influence your development, but there's a lot more going on to it than what we, we even realize today. It's, we're, we're just learning. No, there's no doubt. And it, we're continuing, like there's, don't quote me on this, like five different types of diabetes and we're still discovering other kinds. And it's like, what? And so many. And we both know that most people, when they say the word diabetes, we're all in one big group and that's just not the case. And that's whatever. So I want to talk about the fact that you're a co-creator of the Diabetes Education Center specific to the quality program quality coordinator. And I love the fact that it's specific to ambulatory care. Yeah. That is such a hot topic on a regular basis with people with type 1 or insulin-dependent lymphedies, myself as an example. The last time I went to the ER, I had the norovirus and I was vomiting. There was all these things going on and they wanted to do a, oh, was it a MRI or something? They wanted to see, to get to the root of the problem. I wrote a post about this and they were like, okay, well, you need to take off your CGM. And I was like, I'm not going to take off my CGM. It was on my arm. I knew that they weren't going to be doing that. And one of the nurses said to me, you know what? You know more about your diabetes management than I do. And you tell me what you need. And so it was like this weird, because I've been in other situations to where it's like, you're going to do this, you're going to take this. And I'm like, you're not going to give me an insulin drip. You know, like, what are we doing here? So I say that to you. So let's talk about some of the things that in that program in particular, what are you teaching? Well, again, for, first off, we teach that you are the boss of your diabetes. Nobody's diabetes is the yeah. same. Everybody's diabetes is different. doesn't matter what type of diabetes yeah. it is. It's different, but you're the boss. And, and the research is out there. It shows 95 to 99% of all diabetes self-management occurs by the patient. So it yeah. is diabetes self-management. And I think that's unique to diabetes, whether we're, we're talking about type one, type two, or any other type, mm-hmm. but especially insulin dependent diabetes. There's so many factors. You go see your physician every three to six months and we yeah. evaluate your plan. But as you know, <laughs> tomorrow's diabetes is different than today's diabetes. Yeah. So whatever the plan was yesterday when you were in the doctor's office is different than today. Yeah. So there's so many things, what you eat, whether you're active, whether you're not, um, you know, whether it, hormones, hormones, stress. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The weather outside, it's too hot. Yeah. Like, I mean, you it's have, crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah, blue socks on. That's what I, I joke, you know, about. I know there's lots of memes about that. But yeah, there's just there's no rhyme or reason to it. So first and foremost, it's it's important to know that yes, as healthcare professionals, we, you know, we should be a resource. And I like to say I'm a tour guide on your <laughs> diabetes journey. So we're a resource we can show you the way, but you're the boss. So if the plan that we've come up with is not working, mm-hmm. We have to change the plan, not you. Yeah. Um, and I think great. there's a big paradigm shift in diabetes management right now where we're starting to see that. And, and you know, it's slow to adapt, but I think clinicians are coming around, especially the younger, newer physicians. That's more of what they're, yeah. they're seeing. It's, and CGM, too, has uh, really changed things. Yeah. And all the new pumps that are coming out. I mean, the... I mean, we're always waiting for the cure, but the technology and the advancements there, if you can afford it, makes a world of difference in your quality of life. And with your daughter being, how old is she now? 16? 13. Oh, well, 12, actually. She'll be 13 on the first. (laughs) That's a, how is she? And I don't know if you, and if you don't feel comfortable speaking on her behalf, please, I respect that. But do you feel like she's, you know, there's a, I remember my early teen, tween years, my teenage years, there were some rough, I went through some rough times. Do you feel feel like she's handling her diabetes well? We have been blessed thus far. I hear the teen years get a little <laughs> rocky, but yes, she does a great job. She's responsible and she knows that's part of her being able to to do things outside of the home without us too, is that she's yeah. doing what she needs to do when she's not with us. So she does, but you know, she's still 12, you yeah. know, we, we forget to bolus, we, yeah. we miscount our carbs, you know, it's not cool to have diabetes. So yeah, there's all of that, but she, she does a great job. I could, she really does. Well, I think that's great. And I wish her the best with all the upcoming years, because like you said, every day is different. And when you hit mm-hmm. hormones and all, <laughs> oh yes, shit is about to hit the fan. <laughs> yeah. But Middle already school has, has been fun. <laughs> <laughs> So let me ask you this. Now, I was, nobody ever, I mean, my friends from high school, we mentioned, talked about this recently, is that they never really knew that I had diabetes unless I brought it up because at that point it was on an injection in the morning before breakfast and an injection before dinner. So they didn't really see it unless I had a low blood sugar. So does she wear her gear proudly or does she try to hide it? She does. She does wear her gear proudly. And I don't know if that comes from being diagnosed so you know, young that she's just used to it, not having yeah. it, but she does, she, you know, the midriffs and things are yeah. in style and yeah, it's hot right now. Yeah. So she, you know, she's, she doesn't care. She puts her patches on, she has yeah. fun patches, but she doesn't care. We just went to a water park uh, last weekend yeah. for her birth to celebrate an early birthday. And, yeah. and she, you know, was rocking all of her stuff and carrying her little glucose pouch with her. And she had, she lost a pump and a sensor for that matter. And her friends like, so it was so nice to see the support group she yeah. had because they were really helpful when she was changing her pump, even though she didn't need the help, but they, I felt like the, they would know what to do for her if she weren't Something able happened. to do for herself. Yeah. Wow. Okay. One other question about her in particular is, do you feel like, as I had times in my life where I was like, God, why me? Like, why would you do this to me? Has she had any of those? And do you guys, okay, let's, that's the question. Do you, has she ever had those moments of why me? Oh, for sure. For sure. And yeah. I think because of that, I actually, one of my teaching slides in class, it's like the third slide is why it's just a big 
cartoon yeah. why yeah she asked you know why why did why would god give me diabetes why yeah. you know why the you know a lot of that so but we talk it out and, and phases different phases of life for sure yeah Okay. And then from a parent's perspective and as a medical professional, as we're learning now that like, I have no family history of type one diabetes, the conspiracy theories, do you have any ideas as to, or what are your thoughts on why she has type one? I I don't know. I really don't. I'm literally the only one in my primary family of four that does not have diabetes. My brother was diagnosed with type two diabetes in his twenties. My husband's mom is insulin dependent since she was about 40. Okay. Um, and I, I don't, I think there has, there's something there. I, I know <laughs> that one is an autoimmune and not, but it's just, I'm not sure. I think she's predisposition to having beta yeah. cell dysfunction. <laughs> well, and do you worry or not worry, but have you had your second child tested? Yes. Um, okay. Oh, oh, yes. <laughs> anytime you know anytime he acted especially when he was really young and he would do anything strange yes so he's had an a1c he's been to the <laughs> endocrinologist we've done trial net oh, yes, trial all, net. that's it things. yeah yeah but interestingly enough about that is that his a1c the reason we've seen endo his a1c when he was three was 5.7 which is the top range Higher. of yeah. normal yeah especially for, you know, a three-year-old. Mm-hmm. So we, we had to follow up for about a year and a half with him and it stayed at 5.7, which I think is very interesting yeah. uh, because we would have never checked it before. So we just wouldn't have known. So just, just kind of a curious thing, but they did all the genetic testing. We even checked him for Modi because of the family history of type two. They they were yeah. suspicious of that and everything was, was good for now. So well, that's Go well, I'm, it's good. I mean, maybe if somebody's hearing this that is a parent of a person with type one, that you went through, you've you've done, you've exhausted everything that you can to make, you know, I'm going to say make sure, but to keep up on your other child's to make sh- so you can be on top of it. I mean, there's just so many things, and I'm sure I can't say I'm sure I don't have children, but do you f- live in that little bit of fear, like, oh wow, this could be a, another one, you know, that they're. I yeah. think it's always a little bit in the in the back of your your mind, and I, and I don't know if other parents are like this, but of the two, she is the most you know easygoing. <laughs> so I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, if this <laughs> happens with with him, like it it won't be the same. It, it'll be a different different thing. But no, I think it's always in the in the back of your mind, and yeah, just hope for the best, and hopefully you can avoid DK. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so have you seen the movie, The Human Trial? I have not. I know. You need to see it if you get the opportunity. And I say that because there's always so much hope for a cure. There's so much whatever. And I had the pleasure of interviewing the the producer of the show and who has type 1 and her following these patients for eight or nine years. Like It gives me chills even to say that out loud because you really do. Because I've been a part of a couple of clinical trials. Then she does a fabulous job of documenting it. I encourage you to watch it, bring a box of tissues, but there's a lot of hope out there. And with that being said, and kind of as we wrap things up with all these promises and all the things that are on the horizon and we're now learning more about them, do you feel like a cure for type 1 diabetes is in the future? And what does a cure look like to you? I mean, I pray for a cure every day and my hashtag 
since she's been diagnosed is until there's a cure. And it's kind right. of a, you know, homage to the, oh, there'll be a cure in 10 years. Yeah. Um, so it's always I sign any di- diabetes related email at work with that and, yeah. until there's a cure. So I'm always hopeful that there is a cure. You know, we've we've done a, a lot of things for other mm-hmm. other diseases more recently and we've made so much advancement and some of the newer advancement with type one with the cell therapies yeah. and, and different things and even the preventative therapies that have been approved or yeah I'm always gonna have hope. I have to have hope. So yeah. but I think, you know, if you're gonna be living with diabetes now with all the technology, I mean, if you have to have it, now's the best time. There's no doubt. doubt. And with all the advocacy efforts too about the cost of insulin and having access to all the things that you need and all the devices, it's, um, I'm glad, even though I'm sad that we all have to deal with this, it's nice to have such a family of advocates. They're all working together. And is there anything on the horizon in your advocacy efforts that you want to share? I I mean, everything that your day-to-day stuff right now is you're an advocate. (laughs) I mean, you're doing going above and beyond. Yeah, pretty much that every day, but I'm always advocating for more diabetes self-management education for people. People, I'm so happy and I have to tone my happiness down when I get a a patient that comes to me and they were just diagnosed because I see so many patients that have had diabetes for 20, 30 years and never got the basic education. So I just think I try to put a lot of stuff out into the universe about co-pays and deductibles, hopefully not applying to prevention and education. Right. Because now that that stands in the way of a lot of people obtaining the basic education they need. And we know knowledge is power. We know we need more access to CGN. We know it, we know it changes outcomes. So those, those are the things that I, I just work, work toward every day. And in my little piece of the world, what I can do to make that happen. Well, and you're doing a great job, especially when it comes to I don't get the opportunity as often as I would like to speak to the healthcare provider system as to how to better address people living with diabetes. And, you know, I have interviewed so many people that had diabolemia or, you know, so many things where they, the endocrinologist team let them go because they were never compliant and their numbers never, and instead of asking them the questions as to, okay, why are we here and what is going on and checking in. So you're doing incredible work there. I have two last questions for you. One is one that I asked almost everyone. And I know the area that you live in, so I feel pretty good about this one, but do you have access to fresh fruits and vegetables within a two mile, two mile radius? Yes, we are. We are fortunate to to do that here in Cedar Park where I live. However, Austin does have some food deserts. Yeah, so absolutely. even though, even though we live in a, a busy metropolitan area, unfortunately, that's something that, that people in the community that I work with face. Oh, absolutely. And then the last thing I want to, and it's not an ask, it's more of a statement is, is there anything you want to say to a newly diagnosed parent or a parent of a newly diagnosed child is how I should have worded that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You feel diagnosed. I said that as a kid that I have three children, diabetes is my third child. Anyway, I get so many texts, all my friends, they're great. They know I'm an advocate. So anytime they know of somebody who is newly diagnosed, they reach out to me and they want to give my phone number and I'm always fine with that. But I think just like that diabetes is hard. It is hard. It it can be scary, but it's very doable. Yeah. If you can't, I feel like you have to be able to to take time out. And sometimes I'm fortunate enough for my husband, 
we will rotate sometimes. And again, she's older now, so it's not as much a, as the yeah burden that it used to be. But I think that, you know, it's just going to be okay. And technology and everything has made things so much, so much better. So much easier. There's no doubt. Yeah. Well, and I want to say too, that I, if all goes well, I will go back into doing happy hours in person. And yeah. so I've had a lot of people reach out in the Austin area. So I will be sure to let you know. So I'd love to meet you in person. Love to have your family come out and join the festivities. And it's literally just gathering people together that live with this disease and their loved ones and being around people who get it. And yeah. So thank you for all of your advocacy work. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. And I would love that. We would love that. My daughter would love to meet a grown up with type one. <laughs> I don't know that I would classify myself as a grown up, I'm, but yes, somebody who's lived with her for a very long time. I'd be yeah. happy to to meet her. Will you be in Houston for the <sighs> conference? I have family in town and I have a lot going on in the beginning. What the What is it? August 4th or something? Yeah. Thir- yeah. 4th, the 5th and 6th, I think. I registered as press and got press passes. I just don't think I can make it happen with everything else in my life right now. And I hope maybe if that changes, I'll let you know. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love so to, much to do. Say hi, but yeah. yeah. And well, I know Oklahoma is not much cooler, but if, but it's, it's miserable down here in this part of the world. So you're probably better off to stay up there with the. Oh yeah. Yeah, today it was 77 degrees. Oh, wow. Which, let me tell you that two days ago, it was 112. Yeah. That's... Hence why I sound like this, because the weather changes and my throat goes to crap. I don't know what that's about. But yeah, well, maybe I'll see you in Houston and I'll be sure to keep you posted. <laughs> Most definitely. Thank you, Amber. As I wrap up, I want to remind you that I'm here for my diapeeps and the medical community. So feel free to contact me at diabetesdailygrind.com. Your continued support and love help keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone. Yes, I'm-